Hey friends, you know I love a good story, especially if it's a God story that equips and encourages us in our walk with the Lord. I'm your host, Jody Caracosta, ministry leader at Somebody Cares America and International, author and traveler on this journey of faith. My guest today has a story that will challenge you to look and interact with those who do not know Christ in a different way. Kelly Florence is a beautiful woman of God, a deep thinker, and a dear friend. She is a wife, mother of three, and a published artist. We met at some women's ministry events at our church and became prayer partners during a time when we both had dearly loved people who were close to us, struggling with serious illness and some other issues. When I think of Kelly, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 20a. The New Living Translation says, Christ love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have to stop evaluating or judging others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Kelly is definitely an ambassador for Christ and a reconciler. But for you to truly understand what I'm talking about, you need to hear her God story. Welcome, Kelly. Thanks, Jody. Like the Do Re Mi song from The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. What was life like for little Kelly? Oh, it was a really sweet time. You and I have talked about it briefly, but I loved my parents. They were just terrific. Um, rural upbringing. My family is a farm family in North Carolina. It was a very enjoyable, outdoor, loving, supportive, nature-driven childhood. that did not have a lot of you know, trauma to overcome. And um, I, it, in some ways, it has made me a little tentative about my overall life story and testimony because it was unexceptional. It was really sweet. <laughs> and, you know, aside from a little bit of uh, sibling squabbles and, and you probably lived through that yourself, it, you just think, oh, there are people who've really had to overcome quite a lot. And I, I feel super blessed that the Lord really made that a safe space for me to, to grow up. Um, three older brothers who have really been examples of how Jesus is a big brother to us. Um, they have, uh, you know, they've been caring and they've gone ahead of me in life and, uh, and, and, and plowed some rows that I didn't have to, to plow myself first. But um, yeah, so they were very enjoyable. And it was, I, I would almost say idyllic. Yeah. It sounds like you had an ordinary childhood. It was free from really burdens and stress. So where in your story did you put your faith in Christ and what was the chain of events that brought that about? So my mom and dad were wonderful examples of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. The Bible was not specifically taught in my home. Um, how to be a better disciple was not necessarily taught and verbalized in my home, but my parents were really great disciples of the core necessities of a life in Christ um, and did not make it difficult at me for me at all to approach the God, the father as a, as a father, because fathers are great in my world or approach Christ as a nurturer because moms and nurturers were great in my childhood. Um, we did attend church just a bit when I was uh, younger and my parents had made it a pattern to, to go to church. Their work schedules eventually kind of precluded that. You know, to look back on one of your previous podcasts, The Power of Friendship, I had some friends in sixth grade who just public school in North Carolina just grabbed me and said, hey, why don't you why don't you come to youth group? And I had kind of just been walking around in my own mind as a child, um, thinking about, you know, ghosts, the supernatural, things that you can't see with your eyes. And 
once or twice I had done a couple of little God experiments. You know, if I flip this Bible open to this page, what will it, you know, those kind of immature forays into who's out there and who's listening to me when I'm in my private thoughts. And so taking them up on their invitation in sixth grade, I mean, honestly, what are we all looking for at that age? Society, community, um, I was looking for truth, but it was all embedded in the church experience. That was a really wonderful progression. Went to church with them and loved the message I heard then, and that was middle school, which is kind of a rocky time for everybody. So there were uh, friend dramas and other intrusions of the natural world, you know, hormones and all those kind of things. But so still a big thanks to the friends that I'm still friends with who invited me to church at that point. So shout out to Laura and Anne in, <laughs> in Tarboro, North Carolina and, and other places. But so it was real just going with friends who had just had this loose connection with me at middle school. Enjoyed that, found some truth there and stuck with it for a year, year and a half, joined choir Um, joined a youth group, stayed active, went on retreats and went on summer trips with the youth group. And, And so there was a really strong thread there before it was even being talked about of inclusion. I was totally included in that youth group and in that choir during the year and a half or two years, I sort of made this exploration of, of what is truth and what resonates with me. So how did you explore it? I mean, you were going, but were you doing other things? You had said before you were, you know, kind of testing God occasionally in your in your young life. But I know you're a really thoughtful person. So mm-hmm. at that young age, what was that thought process? So as I was listening, you know, through the lessons and we had some small groups, it, you know, those nuggets of truth stand out to you. And I'm sure at one point I had heard the scripture, you know, count the cost. A good builder counts the cost before you start building. And um, so I knew this was truth I was hearing. I wanted to make a commitment. I saw people getting baptized because I got saved in a Baptist church. And that was a very real tenet of what they did and how they functioned. I just made a commitment at that point. I really want to know what I'm doing before I do this. I don't want this to be a whim. And it had taken months and months. And uh, I committed to read the Bible all the way through once before I made a commitment to move forward with baptism or, you know, requesting baptism or walking to the front to um, to accept Christ. So in sixth grade, you, you decided to read the whole Bible through, which is remarkable. It would have been going on to eighth grade, okay. I would say, because I was actually 15 when I got baptized. So like I said, I really, it was a progression and, and it was a beautiful thing to be included uh, with this group of people. And just, they acted as if I was a truth seeker, you know, just like kids who had grown up in that church. I did not grow up in that church. I was a big reader. Mm-hmm. So for people who are not big readers, I can see, I mean, I have kids who are not big readers and they prefer to engage in the word, maybe through a, through a podcast like this or through actual real events, real life events. But it was relatively easy for me to access the word and get through it. What did I get out of it? <laughs> <laughs> As a seventh and eighth grader, you know, the Lord only knows, but I felt as though I was being a thorough person. Yeah. And, and most of my serious progressions in the Lord and intersections in the Lord have, have had to come through, uh, uh, some sweat and tears and waiting and inner tension. I think that's just how I'm built. I just have to. I think you've mentioned to me in the past when we've talked that once you made that commitment, there was no turning back for you. I was really not tempted toward daring behavior. I didn't find it appealing. I had some family members who participated in in daring behavior, and I could see the consequences. Uh Uh, I wasn't attracted to risky behavior and daring behavior. Anxiety and the inner dialogue for me made me almost silent around other people and almost um, withdrawn. And making that commitment to Christ just made me see the scriptures in a whole new way that I had the ultimate big brother. I had the ultimate defender. I had a king and a Lord who was going to ride before me. It changed uh, a fairly anxious childhood into a much more courageous and dignified. And so I had inclusion first and, and hung around this youth group. 
and then salvation. I knew I wanted to commit to Christ. And then the playing out of sanctification, of course, has just taken years, you know. For all of us. Yeah, yeah. No, that commitment, I didn't run away from it. I didn't have wayward years during college where I didn't follow Christ. I didn't, you know, my marriages have been, you know, took to lovely, godly men. And um, through those years, I just experienced what does it mean for God to be faithful, a faithful father, and expecting him to essentially be, I guess, we would all say a new and improved version of my real life dad, who is really terrific, but, you know, can only be faithful as long as he lives and can only be faithful to the extent that he's human, right? So, um but living throughout some of those things was great for me to see the consistency of Christ really was good medicine for my anxiety. Yeah. To see the faithfulness played out day after day, year after year was the medicine for my anxiety at that stage of life and seeing God's attentiveness to very great detail. And as we'll see later in your story, Mm -hmm. that anxiety could have played a huge havoc Mm -hmm. on your life Mm -hmm. if you hadn't been able to conquer that as a young person. You are such a gifted artist. When you were young, was that part of your life? Did that play a decision about what what you wanted to do after high school, what your dreams were at that point? I wouldn't say it was a, a burning passion at that point. It wasn't a fully fledged ministry or calling. I was bookish. And also enjoyed art, but I, you know, ironically, I knew I did not want to be a teacher. And in my vision that was standing in front of a classroom with other people's children. So I shied away from the English literature aspect of things, but ultimately became a homeschool mom. So that's kind of funny. (laughs) I just taught and taught and taught, but my own kids, right. I did. I went to college um, and pursued a graphic design degree there with an English minor and enjoyed that and, and really And this plays into my thought process for later too, the anxiety and the need to perform, which many of us, even if we're not anxious people, strive under that. Sure. You know, what did I think a successful college experience was going to be? Making great grades, maybe getting elected to head up a couple of clubs, definitely making a community of people who were like-minded. And I think we all kind of have these perfectionistic visions of who we'd like to be in this setting. Um, and with maturity, you know, you realize, oh, I went to college to learn more about me and who I am and how I can function in this world. And uh, the ideal college experience, you learn more about how the world works and philosophies that you can apply to how the world works. Or reject. And utilize those things to approach your philosophy for life and how that grows out of your maturity progress. So not long after college, you got married. And um, how did that relationship develop? Because, you know, you, you don't jump into things typically. You, you, right. you there's right. a process, you process <laughs> them. So yeah. I had a really close group of wonderful friends, went to church with them, the kids I had gone to college with graduated and stayed there and became a church community and a local community. And there was one unsaved young man who was on staff there and had befriended a number of our church friends. And he was dynamic and funny and ridiculous. And so several of them had been inviting them to church and way in the background, I love this too, was a praying grandma. Mm. And I think just the power of praying grandmas is, is stunningly affirmed Mm -hmm. over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sure. Praying moms and dads, those are great too, but, but for people who are empowered to pray past their own generation and past their own lifetime, that takes a lot of vision and a lot of faith. David ultimately got saved and attended church and we were married for six years. Um, Before I committed to marriage with him, I spent a lot of time praying and some time fasting and was very concerned because I had been a serious Christian since I was 15 yeah. and he just came to Christ. I also had a, a childhood that was not filled with drama and trauma and came to the Lord when I was six. And I look back and I think my testimony is all the things that could have happened in my life that did not. I was saved from all those same things. I just didn't have to experience them. People who maybe didn't come to know the Lord until later in life, they have the scars from those and 
for whatever reason, God saved me from those. He has a reason in everyone's life. He loves us all equally. You know, he has different purposes for us too. And in a lot of senses, when he saves us from something like that, he may be saving our children from generational issues. Absolutely. So he's saving future generations when he just stops that trauma here and now. Being married to David, and that was a wonderful thing. And we had a glorious um, six years together. Um, Really enjoyed him. And he brought the same fullness and richness and robust enjoyment to Christian life that he had brought (laughs) to his his pagan life. (laughs) So you say six years. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know, you know, not long after your first child, that was kind of about six years in. So what happened? My eldest was four months old and David and I had been married for six years. He had graduated from college. We had gone back, sent him back to college to finish a teaching certification. We were just on a little small family trip and enjoying ourselves out in the country and another driver um, missed his stop sign and continued through the stop sign and ran into us. That flipped our car a number of times, which eventually came to rest against a light pole. So I was in the car, David was in the car, our four-month-old was in the car in a car seat, and David did not survive that car accident. Mm. So I was pinned in the car, and they came with the jaws of life and and got me out and got Graham out. Um, I had a broken femur at that point, and for People who don't have a medical background, it's it's very difficult to break a femur. That's the largest bone in your body, in your thigh. Was transported to the hospital. Long, 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 long ambulance seemed to last forever, the ambulance ride. And Graham and I arrived at the hospital and David as well. Now, the emergency people are not allowed to tell you on the scene whether another person of your party has passed away or what. They don't report on other people's condition. And that's out of concern for you. Yeah, uh, they want you to focus on you in that moment, and um, and that's that's right, that's rightly so. Um, but I pretty well knew that David had passed away in that car mm. accident. I could see from the looks on their faces and the lack of attention they were devoting to him at that point. They were fully focused on me and the baby at that point. I arrived at the hospital and in the emergency room. Uh, This has always been a very meaningful thing to me in the face of tragedy and devastation. One of the emergency room doctors, I guess, was given the task of coming to me and saying, you know, Mrs. Florence, you're stable. The baby is stable. Here's our plan. You need to know that, you know, your husband has passed away and, and won't be receiving medical care. And in that moment, the spirit of the Lord stirred up in me. Um, It was just truth. It was just the truth of the moment. And I was able to say, you know what? Thank you for confirming that for me. I want you to know that I know Christ Jesus and that David Lane knew Christ Jesus and that I know there's a Father God who is taking him home. Mm. And I am okay affirming that. And I want you to know the same Father God is going to look after me in his absence. And there was a real hush, you know, that fell over that emergency room in that moment. And it just, there was no other truth I could tell at that moment. That was the only truth that I was living, you know. So there wasn't an opportunity to be shy about it or anxious about it. I just knew what I knew, the facts. Interestingly, later in my hospital room, one of the ER techs came up to visit me a number of days later. I was in the hospital in traction for a couple of weeks. And he said, you know, I see a lot in this ER. And most of it makes me believe there is no God. and And that human beings may even be a wasted effort, mm. <laughs> right? I see knife fights. I see, you know, drunk drivers. I see, he said, but what you were able to say in that moment, I've never heard anything like it. And I may not hear anything like it again, but I've been thinking about it ever since. Wow. And that was a week, week and a half, to, you know, 
and and I was heavily drugged and in a lot of pain and in traction. So I don't think my I don't think my uh, follow on testimony was quite as powerful <laughs> as my initial testimony in that moment. But you know, I just encouraged him and said, "It's truth. It is the truth. I live is the only truth I have." Yeah. But, but I know it beyond yeah. knowing. That is how the Lord ministered in that moment, even in tragedy. You know, and and that is so sweet. The Lord does come in those moments and surround us with his comfort. Um, but then you had to walk out a new reality that was quite different yeah. than the joyful, yeah. full of life reality that you had. I mean, you have a four-month-old baby. You're far from home. I mean, I'm sure you had friends, but it's not like family. So, I mean, after you settled in, did did that rattle your faith? Did you begin to question God? Where was he with you in that season? How did you know he was still your good father? Yeah. I'm sad for people who don't experience this maybe as keenly. I know there are believers who just have to go on logic because a lot of times the warm fuzzies don't show up for them for whatever reason. Maybe they're neurodivergent. Maybe, you know, some forms of mental health can can take away from feeling the warm fuzzies that we feel in close communion and intimacy. However, I felt such a sense of intimacy and being cared for and love and support. Now, my family was a very important part of that. My mom and dad were amazing and David's mom and dad were amazing. Um, I was able to move back home and recover at home because I left the hospital in a, in a wheelchair. That being said, the moment I opened my mouth in prayer, Jesus felt very present. Mm. The moment I laid down and closed my eyes to go to sleep, I felt a companionship. Fortunately, my grief was a wholesome and healthy grief mm. that just needed to happen. Yeah. Um, I said to myself, there are a certain number of tears that will need to be cried between the beginning of this dark tunnel and somewhere toward the light at the end of the tunnel. And my work is just to do that grief work. Now, in retrospect, I mean, if I could go back and tell myself, I would say, find a grief support group, Mm -hmm. go do it. But again, I had moved back to a relatively rural area right on, on the farm with my parents. And that's been a very healing place for me, that location. And my dad was amazing. He's still alive. Um, My mom was very supportive. I have this metaphor, you know, when we're dealing with little children and we're crossing a four lane highway, you don't reach out to a small child and expect a hand grasp, like with fingers gripping you. If you really want to make sure they get across the highway, you just grab them by the wrist and you say, here we go. If necessary, you lift them bodily. (laughs) So I very much felt that this was a crazy, awful, potentially disastrous, demanding, chaotic time of my life. And yet I really felt the grasp of the Lord's hand Mm. firmly. Was able to find a church body that really ministered to me. Great pastoral leadership, good community close by. And the Lord even placed one of my very dearest prayer partners from college. She had no connection with Tarbra, and Tarbra's a town of about 10,000 people. And after college, moved to Tarbra. Wow. And this was my prayer partner for the three years, my sophomore year to my senior year. And she lived in Tarbra and she worked at a hospital. Wow. So all my transitions from wheelchair to bathtub and regaining strength, she was able to really minister to me. So. So friendship there again is a powerful thing. So I remember you telling me that marriage was a really good fit for you. At this point, you're living back with your parents in a small community, not a lot of eligible men there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I know you got married again. So how did that transpire? I did, but it, it was difficult as a woman of faith, you know, and at that point I had enough maturity to realize, you know, this is not going to be a quest for a cute companion. I had a child and was a widow and escalated into a different category of, <laughs> of partnership. Right. Um, when that's your commitment to family, you know, this is, this is not negotiable. We are family and we come as a unit and, and here we are. In a way, when you have a tragedy like that, you feel especially vulnerable. You feel emotionally vulnerable. But also in a small community, I felt that a lot of people knew my business mm-hmm. and sort of knew my family and the story of David's passing. So I couldn't just walk up to a person and start with a fresh slate. That was almost impossible, you know, 
details are known and and stories are known. It was in the newspaper. I mean, it was a pretty, you know, it was Big, a yeah. pretty notable car accident. Growing up in this small community, I did have friends, close friends, who had gone from sixth grade all the way through high school because, you know, you end up in the same classes with the same people. We we really ended up feeling like brothers and sisters. I mean, none of us dated each other. It was just like you were you were too close. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I know too much about you. I've known you well as a sixth grader, and now we are 18 years old. I'm never <laughs> going to date you, right? But enjoyed that level of fellowship. And one of those fellows, Tommy Wobble, had served in the Navy as a Navy officer and often returned back home to Tarbra for visits to his family and business, visit his mom and dad. And, you know, he would check in and just say hi. And during some of these conversations, he just kept saying, you know, I have this friend you should meet. And at the time, I still felt very vulnerable. And I thought, I don't really want to get into that. I'm I'm terrified of, you know, I guess in 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 really kind of crass terms, we would say the meat market, right? You, you, nobody wants to feel like, oh, I'm, I'm jumping back into this uh, situation again. And I did feel lonely and I did feel made to be a married person. Carrying that with me, I just kept feeling like maybe it's too early. Maybe it's too early. This is about two years after David's passing. And many people would say that was too early. But as a 29-year-old and a 30-year-old, you know, you, you do have an eye to the future and you think, how is this all going to play out? Tommy kept pestering me and saying, you know, you really should. You should write my friend, Greg, or I have a phone number, but it'd be better to email. So this is in the very early days of email. Ultimately, Tommy was saying the same thing to Greg. Greg, you should write my friend Kelly because, I mean, okay, she's single. She's widowed. And Greg would just hear that and think, well, are you kidding? What do I write her and say, hey, heard your husband passed away, interested in going out. <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, to him, it just felt very um, uncourteous to, yeah. to dive into my personal life. And, and he is a man of great courtesy. What Tommy was not saying is, Greg, Kelly knows you exist. She would be open to hearing from you, but she's not going to initiate this mm-hmm. because she doesn't walk around to give men her phone number. She doesn't right men that she's interested in. That's not who she is. You're going to have to take the first step. Tommy was never saying that to Greg. So not a very good matchmaker. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but the Lord... Not, not real skilled at it. No, but. No, but the Lord uses the tools he has yes. at his disposal. And that was Tommy on this day. But Greg ultimately did not ever write me. And Tommy said, look, hey, I just want you to think about this as a lonely serviceman overseas. He said... Just do like a mercy letter and send it to him. So I did. I sat down and I was feeling very put out, not enjoying being pressured into this kind of communication. So I started out pretty snarky and I just said, hey, if the defense of our nation is left in the hands of men who cannot bring themselves to write a letter to a single woman thousands of miles away, then I'm concerned about the future of our nation. <laughs> and he was so, where? He was in Japan at the okay. time. Okay, yeah, you were in North Carolina. I was Carolina. in North Carolina. So, so he was very far away. And, and I, of course, didn't see what relevance he had to, to my life in North Carolina in a rural setting. And, you know, he thought it was hilarious and jumped on board and just wrote and wrote and wrote the most glorious, companionable, open, transparent, funny, informed, culturally aware, great letters, very thoughtful, and showed a good bit of wisdom for a guy who was still single in his 30s. And and that was the kind of depth I needed as a mom and a widow and a mother. So on paper, he was great. And I used to kid him writing back, oh, let me guess, there's one guy in the room writing your comedy section. And there's (laughs) one guy in the room writing your book reviews. And there's one guy in your room writing little, you know, tender notes to me as you get to know me. He was like, no, it's all one guy. I'm just (laughs) one guy here. So that kind of long distance. That was a very meaningful way to get to know him. I mean, really, we were confined to email letters for months and months and months. Yeah. And it's a great way. Um, We're very different. And I was very intimidated because I often joke that I, in wanting, in writing up my want ad for a future spouse, would never have written a want ad that said, wanted Yankee Catholic sailor (laughs) who is not in the continental U.S., right? Yeah. <laughs> not, none of that. They were all obstacles in my eyes. Yeah. And some of them may be insurmountable. But my presupposition about Greg 
was that he was Catholic because it had been handed to him Mm -hmm. culturally. He he was from Connecticut. His mom's had strong roots in New York. And I made some presuppositions about him and his faith walk that were not accurate. And we spent all these letters and emails just sort of finding out where we really were in faith instead of our assumptions about where we might be in the faith. And it took work and, and frankly, attraction had a lot to do with why I was willing to do that work of chipping away at my misconceptions about his Catholicism or about his cultural experiences or about his faith walk in general. So there was an impetus there. There was a motivation there that said, I'm this invested in this person that I really am attracted to. Am I willing to do the further work and find out who he genuinely is? So what was God speaking to you through all of that? It was a scary time because ultimately it's the first time in my spiritual life. I mean, of course, the long distance made me again aware of what what does faithfulness look like when this person says, you'll have a message from me tomorrow. That happened, Mm -hmm. you know? And so in a lot of ways, even long distance, the Lord sort of emphasized this is what safety looks like. This is what faithfulness looks like. This is what no pressure looks like. And I think the Lord was determined to not trigger any further anxiety in me. Yes. (laughs) So that was a kindness to just have this person at a little bit of a remove. Um, Now, we were able to call, but that was also back in the days when when long-distance phone calls from overseas were incredibly expensive. It was was either, okay, you could maybe fly here to see me, or we could spend all this money on phone calls, but we can't do both. So that was uh, an interesting thing. But the Lord was really speaking to me through that time. And ultimately, the more and more serious we got, we got to a juncture where the Lord just said, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do in this situation. Previously, I felt like the Lord helped me know where to go to college. I mean, I would just, you know, throw out a little thing. I will go to college, Lord, wherever the scholarship is biggest that's offered to me. So don't offer a scholarship to me if it's not where you want me to go to college, because whoever offers me the most money, that's where I'm going. And, um, and he was very faithful with all of my little requests like yep, that, you know, yep. and then suddenly the Lord just said, Oh, here's an opportunity for you. Here's a person you're attracted to and you enjoy who is notable and worthwhile. What are you going to do about this relationship? And that terrified me. It really did because I was so used to getting input from the Lord and assurances from the Lord. It was the first time I felt like a, he was trusting me with a decision that required a lot of future investment. I mean, again, I already have a child, right? And um, there's a lot hanging on this. Um, that's one way maturity stepped up into that intersection as well. For the Lord to just say, there's not a wrong answer. In this situation, there's not a wrong answer. I'm giving you a couple of different opportunities and I'm I'm going to stand by and support you while you make these decisions, right? So, yeah. So that was, um, and and again, you know, I mean, for me and Greg, it was Catholic and Protestant, North and South, urban and very rural. There's a sense of otherness about this. I will never live in North Carolina again if I marry a U.S. Navy staff person. It'll be very difficult to do that. But my my home ports are going to be San Diego, Washington, D.C., overseas. So I was leaving really all the cocoon-like safety of a home place that I had um, been recovering with my mom and dad and growing even deeper roots in that farm community and that sense of safety. So it was very challenging. Yeah. So you did get married and becoming a Navy wife. You just Mm -hmm. talked about Mm -hmm. all the big shifts you were going to go through from small homogenous community to Boy, in the Navy, you meet, and any military branch, you know, you meet people from every background and belief system. And and how did God show you through all of that to be salt and light to them? I mean, he yeah. took you from a safe place where you healed to a place where you could be salt and light. So I think that relationship with Greg actually was a great beginning to connecting with people from pretty different cultures. Of course, the moment we lived in San Diego briefly, and we were at the edge of a very alternative neighborhood. For people who know anything about San Diego, um, Hill, Hilltop, Hillcrest, 
um, was a neighborhood that's fairly famous for its alternative communities. Oh. Uh, Greg picked it out because it was close to a hospital and close to a great pizza shop and close to work. And so yeah. he was done. His coaches said. Um, after that, we lived in D.C. And D.C. is very notable for mixed communities, um, culturally, na- in- international. So on our street, we had Ethiopians, we had Egyptians, we had people from all walks of life who would drop off dishes. Oh, here's a rice dish I made extra. You know, oh, why don't you stop by? We're having, you know, this is how we do Christmas. And while those were not always deep relationships, they were lasting and they were nearby. They were right on my doorstep. Um, And now I'm, you know, interacting with Greg and learning about his Catholicism and what that means to him. And 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 it's no joke. The North and South divide is Mm -hmm. he did not know what chicken salad was. Yes. Did not. And when they had a death in the family, I took a huge tray of chicken salad to his parents and they had no idea like what to do with this. <laughs> well, when my husband and I, I'm from the South and yeah. when we got married, I said we were having barbecue and he thought we were going to grill burgers on the grill, but we had barbecue pork and he looked at it very strange and picked at it a little bit. He loves it now. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> It's a learning curve. It is a learning curve. So I think the Lord is willing to start us small, Mm -hmm. right? Now, you've had a lot of intercultural experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, you jumped in with both feet in a way that I I don't know that I could have. I grew up military, though. True. I grew up military. True. So you had a, you had a head start. I did. Maybe on me, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm, I, I like my safety zones. I like my security zones. I begin to have to walk away from anxiety associated with people who are different. Um, and, and I think that there's a very strong narrative culturally. Recently, I was reading a book that highlights, you know, how tribal human beings are. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always an us versus them element. And it's one of the basic foundation. Honestly, I mean, I would almost call it part of the original sin package. Um, Because I think in the Lord's eyes, who is us versus them? Where are you getting that from? Yeah. (laughs) Who are you talking about? Yeah. But as humans walking around in human skin, there is always a narrative in my, in, in our heads um, of us versus Republicans versus Democrats or people in other nations where they're, they're too far away for me to care about. Those are other people or, you know, the poor, those are ills that befall the poor quote, quote, what well, you could be a poor person in a flash, in a moment, you could skip categories and become them in a lot of situations. And so that kind of tribal mindset, who's in my tribe and who's not in my tribe, even in Absolutely. Christianity, there's the that church and this church, that denomination and this denomination, you know. And in our culture today, division is really elevated and encouraged. Even under the banner of inclusion, it's really sowing division underneath it. I agree. And within within churches, we, you know, people who drink versus people. When when Greg and I got married. His entire cultural experience would have dictated there would be alcohol at the reception, Mm -hmm. right? Mixed drinks, maybe an open bar, right? And my very Protestant background, that absolutely, A, because the reception would probably be in the church hall, in the fellowship hall. Divisions are just everywhere, and we can make it our life's work to try to minimize or even eradicate those. Reconcile. I mean, God, the beginning, I talked about that verse where God came, Jesus came to reconcile ourselves, you know, us to him. And he has called us to be reconcilers. Absolutely. And one of the things that as I reflect on my experience, other people may have a different standpoint, but fear of other quote, quote, Mm -hmm. tribes is often what drives us. What is their agenda? We attach words that have meaning and convey a sense of urgency or fear or even anger um, and unfortunately, we've just developed a lot of those words and phrases and verbiage in the Christian camp and honestly, in other other segments of the society, too. But I have just found at its core, fear precludes warm hospitality. It precludes generosity. It precludes an open handed defenselessness that I've feel strongly Christ calls us to. Mm. And 
counselors would say, we're often angriest about things that make us fearful. So when you catch yourself being really angry about somebody's agenda or somebody's stance or a catchphrase associated with the demographic of people, immigrants, you may want to ask yourself, what am I afraid of? And is, is Christ rooted in this feeling of fear and anger that I have about this conversation about other humans, you know? And I think that often happens. You recently used, when you and I were talking, I love it. You made the comment, well, we as Christians are triggered by fill in the blank. Oh, everybody is triggered. I mean, Christians and non-Christians alike. It's that uh, COVID was just a, an elevate, an escalator of this. Absolutely. But, uh, we are triggered by so many things. And oh, I mean, young people are taught to be triggered uh, on college campuses. Any little thing that makes them feel uncomfortable, they just don't know how to cope anymore. And that's not, that's not Christ. That's not God. Exactly. So, you know, what did God show you about all of that, Kelly? Walking away from that sense of fear and how to do that, determining how do we feel that our defenses are being encroached upon? How do we feel threatened Mm -hmm. by this, right? Um, Being triggered. First, I would say an important thing to do, investing in love in another human being. Now, Greg was an excellent starting point for me to get outside my cultural experiences up until then. Finding a real live human being. Not a group, but a human, one. From that demographic Mm. that you can fall in love with. I may get teary here because investing in humans is a beautiful thing and it touches our heart and it gets us to a place of brokenness. Whether that investment is valued, whether that investment is fruitful and productive. But when we serve our own self-sacrifice, giving to another person, maybe financially, maybe shelter, but when you can provide anything out of your own resources, support, count, mentoring, whatever. Friendship. Friendship. Thank you. Yeah. Um, We invest in a person and that person begins to guide our thought process. What does it look like to interact with immigrants? Okay, well, this is not any longer some remote stereotype or an icon of immigrants. This is a person who has a name, who has a baby. I showed up for the baby shower. This is an immigrant. This is how I can relate to that person. Would you donate an organ to this person? Would you invest a couple of thousand dollars? Because I don't really want to hear another person's political theories or uh, stances on immigrants if they are only a stereotypical group of people, a demographic. We're talking about a theory of humanity. Now we're not talking about policies. You can have an opinion on policies. You can have an opinion on, yes, on uh, the actual sin. Yes. But not the person. God tells us not to judge or evaluate the people, even though we are okay to evaluate the policies and the sin. Your everyday behavior is going to be dictated by something different than political theories. Right. Um, And if your everyday behavior is dictated by your political theories, then you have a broad potential to be offended by everybody and cut off everybody and live in fear and isolation. And that's not what Jesus calls us to. Exactly. I don't know. For me, that's a little bit of a benchmark to say I'm beginning to love in a Christ-like way. Would I donate a couple of thousand dollars to this person? Would I be willing to be the organ donor or a major blood transfusion. Okay. If I don't love a person in that way, if you don't love a person in that way, I really don't, I'm not going to put a lot of value on your opinions about Republicans versus Democrats or immigration or the LGBTQ community. You know, that's a, that's another thing that's going on now. That's a bit of a flashpoint. And as you've pointed out, can be trigger, right? Um, So if you don't love a person who has same sex attraction, um, and, and are committed to maybe offer them hospitality or to open your hand in defenseless generosity, 
your opinion about that demographic of people, I personally just don't have a lot of esteem for your theories about this demographic, mm-hmm. right? And it's so easy to say, to attach these cultural catchphrases, militant or culture wars. And you and I kind of lived through this era in the 70s and 80s. You know, the gay community was um, much less talked about and much more maligned. I think the consensus was we were all aware it was a concept that was going to grow and be talked about more in media and be talked about more in the culture. And most Christians were terrified by that. Um, And as you rightly pointed out, maybe in a way that was disproportionate, um, are we terrified by, you know, other margin, other cultural groups, Mm -hmm. other demographics in our community? Often we're not. Right. Um, But there are some flashpoints. And honestly, I think the media has contributed a great deal to divisiveness among all of us. Sure. By attaching these unhelpful and powerful and negative catchphrases. But you and I participated in church during a time when we, from the pulpit, heard things like culture war and heard things like um, militant and far leftist and it instilled a fear in me and an anxiety in me to say, I need to hunker down deeper into my tribe because this tribe is so other that it's scaring me. And mm-hmm. how, what is my fear based in? I probably would not have even been able to verbalize appropriately. Scripture tells us that we are to love others, show them love so that they can understand God's love and let him transform them. Our arguments aren't going to transform them. Our opinions aren't going to transform them. But our behavior, if it's our behavior can transform them, whether it's love or hate. If it's hate, it's going to contribute more hate. If it's agape love, it's going to lead them to Jesus. And uh, we don't need to be fearful if God is leading us to reach into communities that we're unfamiliar with. To show them the love of God. And reaching into other communities. I mean, I think that doesn't mean we embrace their behavior. Right. Or even their political stances or, you know, I mean, that's all, you know, that's, I I think, small fry. And it's easy to hang on to that separation and the antipathies and even aversion when we only know a sort of an icon or a stereotype of another tribe yeah. or flavor of person, yeah. right? And I'm going to be honest and say that in my 20s, these were the seeds that were sown, unfortunately, in the 70s and 80s. I don't know how many repercussions they're still having mm-hmm. for the community at large, maybe quite a lot. Um, the The dialogue was just not a very informed or balanced or careful dialogue. Right. And, and, and it was a formative time for a lot of us. Now, I just think with a bit of years and maturity and age, Um, instead of being in my 20s and 30s and talking about militant people who are scary to me, I I could be a mom to a lot of these kids now that I meet who have same-sex attraction or are uncomfortable in their own gender, um, whether they've made a proclamation about that and said, I am a transgender person or I am a gay person. For a few of them, it has been a temporary experience. For many of them, it is a permanent life Choice. Situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would even hesitate to say choice because there are people who just feel same-sex attraction and it is their entire life. My hope is that they could bring that conversation about themselves to Christ and say, would you join me, Lord, in this lifelong work I have about me? Just like I have my lifelong work about me that I have to do. Um, I I think we can't invalidate the fact that there are people who have, who just are attracted to the same sex and it is a fact for their lives, no matter what their outlook is on it. But at this point and at this age, I can say I can easily love even some fairly prickly folks from that tribe. Um, (laughs) um, I feel maternal about them. I feel concerned about the dangers of their lives. Um, We all have various, depending on what our behaviors and our lives are, we have various pitfalls and dangers associated with them. 
Um, I just feel passionately that I would like for them to have that sense of a large embracing father that I longed for when I was young. And that large embracing father is holding his arms out. And that is the conversation that we've dropped the ball on. For this demographic and for other demographics that we feel other than. All through this time when you are learning new things and engaging with new tribes and new people and the Lord's really giving, opening your heart to them with his love, he also was opening some doors for artistry for you. Mm. He was really drawing that forward. And someone gave you an even unusual prophecy. Uh, what were some of those op opportunities and what was that word that he gave you? In my local church, after the accident home, just being a single mom, and I, I was often just sort of shied away from prophetic anything. I'm, I, I haven't had a lot of great experiences with, with prophecies. I haven't had a lot of confirmed things, though I believe that the Lord is the Lord of the supernatural, and that's a fantastic thing. Um, but was always wary because I just kept thinking, what if I hear something like negative? What if I hear something that I don't want to hear? Well, here I am, you know, as a widow, and I just thought, okay, just about the worst thing possible has happened to me. So I'm going to go up and hear what somebody has to say, because if it's correct, that's great. And if it never comes to pass, that's okay, too. I feel brave enough. So I went forward, and it was really interesting. And he said, I, I see on your hands some stain, some coloration. And he didn't literally see that, but he said, I see, you know, color and colors and, and lines and artistry. And I said, well, yeah, I'm, I have a background in graphic design and illustration. And he said, well, I see that you're going to be making cards and print material and new art. You won't have a middleman. It will be you and you will be selling your own art and your own cards and your own print material to support suffering and marginalized children and families. It'll be a ministry of yours. And I thought, okay. So went back to my seat and just thought, okay, well, that seems, that's resonating with me. We'll just see. Because at the time, again, I was a single mom living at my parents' house with a child and, and had become um, a church secretary just as a part-time job. And um, so that was a really interesting vision for me to hear about for myself and has kind of just given me courage to keep some momentum going at, at moments when I might have, have lost momentum. Later, I had a chance to do some illustrations for children's textbooks. Um, and that was a good, that was a good career time for me. I've worked at a newspaper doing some graphic design for news for a small, small town newspaper. So those were all steps in the art field that were meaningful to me. Since then, I've done some stage design and set design and set paintings for theater. And again, that's all about telling the story. You know, these were wonderful shows that, you know, Fiddler on the Roof and, you know, some Dickens shows. And so things that really communicated larger truths. Um, so that's really enjoyable. And ultimately I ended up founding a, a, a very small art production company. Um, it's about to become nonprofit in which I served some of the Navy community, um, having married Greg in his Navy career. It just, it felt that a lot of that community were very grounded in history and um, a strong, strong connection with museums and uh, the, the cultural history of, of the Navy, the U.S. Navy, but also just nautical history in general. And so for their important events like uh, retirements and um, uh, promotions. There was just not a lot of beautiful history uh, mementos or print materials or programs. So I gifted Greg with a couple of pieces that commemorated his naval career. Um, and, um, and it seemed very meaningful to him and was attractive to other people in the Navy community. So it's been used a few times for a couple of retirements and promotions. And what and were they? John Paul Jones ship, the Bonhomme Richard, in, in, a, in a compass setting and frame and gave him that for part of his retirement and then subsequently did the USS Constitution and have branched out to do the USS Wisconsin, which is here in Virginia Beach and um, and a few others of interest. So that has been a little bit of an expanding storyline and, yeah. um, and have done just a couple of commissioned pieces that commemorated individuals 
one recent young man, this was just kind of fun, um, was promoted to chief, which is a very important um, threshold and landmark in a, in a career. And his family commissioned a piece that would commemorate his trips to the Holy Land. Oh. His favorite cruises were to Malta and the Holy Land. And there's, of course, some gorgeous scenic relics there. Yeah. And I was able to incorporate elements of his cruise and put his actual ship in a scene at the Holy Land with some aqueducts and the, the coast of Caesarea in the background and um, incorporate some other elements, um, including Christ as the anchor for his, uh, for his promotion. So that was a lot of fun to work on that. And you've actually used that to support ministry, the, the profits from that. Is that, I mean, that was something that God put on your heart when you started Compass. It's true. So it was a lot of fun. We already gave, my husband is a very generous giver, and we already gave generously tithing and donations. And I really just felt like I don't want to give more out of our personal finances. I'd like to develop my own avenue out of which I can give exclusively that's independent of our family finances. So that has been a seven year slow journey. Uh So, you know, you don't despise the day of small beginnings, but, um, you know, as I age, I can devote more time to that endeavor now. And it's really, you know, I need to find out more about your widow and orphans initiative as well, because I, I haven't asked any questions about that, but it's so closely aligned to, you know, my passion. So yeah, Somebody Cares does have a Widows and Orphan Fund, and it really grew out of our desire to respond to James one twenty seven, where mm. God calls us true religion right. to care for the widows exactly. and orphans and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And we have a network around the globe of ministry partners that care for orphans, as well as widows who've really devoted a lifetime of service to the Lord and who are now in need. And the challenges they face many places overseas, you know, Haiti and Colombia, Nigeria, uh, Ukraine, uh, and more, they can be overwhelming without help. I mean, it's overwhelming with help. Yes. Uh, Without help, it's, it's even more so. And we come alongside those partner ministries to do the more for the orphans, you know, that the orphans, they're, they're provided care, but if there's a special need they have, or they have a special gift that needs to be developed, Mm -hmm. we try to come alongside them. And the women who've given a lifetime of service to the Lord, who lose their husbands and really don't know where to look, will come alongside for those special circumstances. And, you know, as a company of women together, we can do so much more together than we can apart. So, you know, if you're listening and you would like to be a part of that company of women and join us, uh, you can do that with a gift of any kind at hergodstory.org. So, Kelly, how would you encourage others to take those scary steps across the great divide that separates Christians from those who don't know Christ yet. I mean, to really be ambassadors and to represent him well to people who might even be hostile to him. I think we're often given mission fields. We don't really want neighbors and family and friends. Um, And so often we have these gorgeous moments that are open to us and uh, we look past them to something maybe more convenient, I would say, or more glamorous or more expected I think what the Lord brings to us, often we're fearful about, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have a family member who uh, is gay, if you have a family member who uh, is dating an illegal immigrant, if you, you know, there are lots of small bridges we can cross and say, how can we get past whatever fear we've got or whatever avoidance issues we want to avoid people? Ultimately, I feel like our greatest calling is to break ourselves open and to share what we are inside. And so often ministry feels performance driven. And I think that connecting with other humans, for us Christians, we have this misconception that connecting with them is part of our performance as a good believer. And I think that not only sort of sullies human connection, but it also sullies what does it mean to be a good Christian? Um, Because the longer I live and the more difficult people that I reach out to, and not even difficult people, but other people, the only thing that matters is when I am broken open, do I smell like love or joy or safety or peace? or a comfort. 
and it's not performance driven, performance driven mindset ruins so much of the authenticity that God wants to call us to. And other human beings can tell oh, you're, you're on it. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I think it's just imperative that, you know, all these people who are other than us want to be people of dignity and want to be people with meaning in their life. And they also want to be broken open and smell like something that has an eternal flavor, has an eternal scent. Um, and, and my calling to reach out to others, I would say, would just culminate in saying, if you are an artist, like you said, you've mentioned, you know, the Lord just uses what's in his hand. Break me open. This is not about what I can get done today, but it's about communion in transparency. That's what Christ's communion is about, too, is him breaking himself open. Um, and sharing what he is. And I think that's where we find meaning and it's where we can intersect even with people who are radically different from us Um, because that's not about our politics and it's not about our stances and it's not about ideologies. If we have the confidence and we can set the fear aside of otherness and share ourselves and how God has worked on us to make us more authentic. That is communion. Can you share about a woman in the Bible whose story maybe has connected with you in some way? I think I would have to pick Ruth. And I think some of these themes that we've touched on friendship, friendships, including us and people taking us in, um, Naomi took her in and took her in in friendship. You know, we've all had terrible mother-in-law stories and I just saw one on the internet this morning. (laughs) Um, And Ruth was taken in and included. She was embraced, even very different culture, but she was embraced and included. Through that, even through her loss and losing her husband, which resonates with me, um, she found larger embracing and caring arms um, in the Lord, but practically speaking in Boaz, you know, um, she had a successful second marriage. And so I see a lot of those themes sort of developed in, in Ruth. And I love it that she was able to come home to those arms that were bigger than her and bigger than her tragedy. And, um, And they did not allow her tragedy or her loss or her people group or her tribe to define her. Yeah. It drew her through all of those things into a whole nother life. Mm. That was a walk of sanctification. You know, sometimes we think we don't have much to offer in the way of ministry. Uh, This morning in my devotions, I I was reminded of Moses who was tending sheep in the desert for 40 years when God called him. Moses didn't think he had anything to offer. He told God he didn't speak very well, so surely there was someone better qualified. And, you know, God could have touched Moses' lips just like he did the prophet Isaiah's, but instead God asked Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses said a staff, which is basically a long, thick stick. Yeah. But God used that stick in amazing ways. He used it to convince the Israelites who were in bondage that he had heard their prayers and he cared for them. He used it to begin the process of setting the people free. Yeah. He used it to part the Red Sea so they could get to safety. He used it to bring water from the rock to quench their thirst and many other things. And dear friend, if you're wondering how God could possibly use you, maybe he's waiting for you to answer the same question. What is in your hand? Are you a gardener that you can share produce with others? Do you have an obedient dog that can be trained for hospital or nursing home visits? Are you an empty nester with extra time on your hands to volunteer in the community or mentor young moms or the gift of hospitality that makes everyone feel welcome? Maybe you have the gift of serving or a brilliant businesswoman. Kelly is an artist and God's using that. I love a good story about what God's doing in someone's life. And I know a lot of women who have great stories. So I have a podcast. If you offer to God that thing that you think is meaningless, He can take it and teach you how to use it to share his love with others. 
If God can use Moses' staff, he can use anything. Kelly, would you take a moment and pray for everyone who's listening to this story? Holy Spirit, we invite you in. We invite you into hurting places and places we feel insecure. We invite you into places that are unexpected. You want to use us and you want to use the gifts you've put in us, God. And that is a shocking thing sometimes. We invite you in and Jody and I agree together that this listening audience would be inspired to hear your encouragement, to receive your courage, and to set their hand to the tool that you've put in front of them, God. Mm -hmm. And we bless hurting and marginalized people who don't feel embraced. And we ask that your arms would be wide enough and big enough to begin gathering them in, in an embrace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. Links to Kelly's website and greeting cards, as well as scriptures and other helpful information, can be found in our show notes at HerGodStory.org. There, you can also sign up for periodic emails, get a free Her God Story devotional, and find out about the Somebody Cares Widows and Orphan Fund. If you feel like you need prayer, please call or text the Somebody Cares 24-7 prayer line at 855-459-CARE or email us at prayer at somebodycares.org. We'd love for you to share Kelly's story with friends and be sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And now, dear friends, I leave you with a blessing taken from 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into full understanding and expression of the love of God and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. Her God Story is a ministry of Somebody Cares America and International. To find out more about or support the ministry, go to somebodycares.org.